Come on, Freddy's Kitchen in Station Street for a coffee and something nice to eat. Yeah, the pizzas are great. In fact, all the food rates down at Freddy's Caram Station Street. Come on, come on, come on, down to Freddy's now. Come on, come on, come on, down to Freddy's now. It's a pizza. It's a mystic pizza. I'm Ilana Rasbash, and this is Radio Architecture. Good evening from beautiful Bonnarong country. So glad to be broadcasting to you live on Radio Karam from the Karam Karam Swamp. Tonight is also a full moon and it's incredibly beautiful outside and a really good chance to reflect on the Bunurong people's continuing connection to sky as well as land and water. Welcome back for another evening of Radio Architecture with Alana Rasbash. My conversation partner tonight is Simon Drysdale. He is an architect, an educator and advocate specialising in innovative aged care and dementia care design. Simon is the founder of consultancy Care3D, a board member of the Heathcote Dementia Alliance and a member of the Dementia Alliance International Environmental Design Special Interest Group. Simon is interested in inclusive urban design and believes that care-enabled environments should be a positive reciprocal relationship experience. This is critical to health, well-being, education and rehabilitation. As a passionate educator, Simon regularly supervises master's thesis students and leads design studios at RMIT Architecture and Urban Design. Prior to his career in architecture, Simon studied nursing. Welcome to Radio Karam, Simon. So, Hello. <laughs> so glad to have you on. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to be here and congratulations on, on, um, on the aspirations and, and what you're trying to achieve here. It's lovely to be here. Thank you. Thanks. I'm really, really enjoying it and having such varied conversations every single week and very keen to jump into some of the threads that we've jumped left slowly for our listeners so far. We've, we've mentioned ageing in place and I'm sure earlier in the show on prior episodes I'm sure that'll come up later in our conversation tonight. The first question I like to ask is what's your earliest memory of a building or place? Um, <clears throat> the earliest memory of place that I have and I, it, I say place because um, it wasn't a building and uh, I grew up in country Victoria right down the bottom end um, down in the northeast Gippsland um, down towards Sale and Bansdale. And uh, my earliest memory is a place called Blue Pools, which is on the um, uh, bottom elbow of the of the mountains that run down through there near a little township called Briagalong. And um, the Blue Pools are fondly memory, it was a fond memory for me because um, it's clear blue, you know, clear water and it's coming straight from the mountains and you jump off the granite rocks into Clear water, you know, clear water. It was a really good, memorable, sacred place. Wow, that's a really beautiful memory. Mm. I want to look it up and go there maybe in the summer. 
Yeah, I'll do so. You can go camping there if you want. And there's a fantastic drive from uh, Briaglong up to the Dargo High Plains. Um, so you can get up to the Dargo Pub, you know, should you wish to. Yeah, it's pretty good. And that, that pub is very well known in Dargo <laughs> as well. Th- th- that's interesting. You, you mentioned a place, in, a place in nature as well. You're the first one of my guests so far um, that, is, that is connected so much away from a building in that thought and also the definitely the first architect that has not mentioned a, a building a response to that question and I, I really love that and wonder whether your interest and love towards nature is something that has underpinned your passion for rural work and work with rural communities to keep them in, connected to, to country and nature and landscape oh yeah without a doubt i mean um, um who doesn't love a good road trip i mean um uh <laughs> Uh, Emily, if you're listening, um, that's my wife. Our, our honeymoon was a road trip. We had nothing. We had no money. And uh, we borrowed um, my father-in-law's car and we drove it from Victoria to um, Western Australia, zigzagging back and forth from the coast out to the desert. Um, such is um, our uh, mutual love of a good road trip. And I think that's a really lovely Australian thing as well. Um, absolutely. In terms of nature, um, big sky... The idea of wind and the seasons are an essential thing to be connected with. Um, they tell us it's a time, it's clock, it's celestial, and uh, and and being on country is important. We, it, it's very uh, fascinating, and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit later on. But the emergent kind of importance of First Nations knowledge systems in regards to the celestial and how that's influencing the model of care and some theoretic, some new theories in terms of the model of care is really interesting as well. Now go on, say more. Oh, well, it's real um, memory, for example. I mean, we'll, 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 we've already talked about, you know, we mentioned dementia, we've talked about, you know, cognitive decline, cognitive decline um, in that scenario. Well, narrative-based memory systems are a better way to retain information, are a better way to retain stories, place, um, value systems than the traditional way of boxing um, housing information, such as the Greek model of memory. So, so people connect the stories better, much much better than Mem- and, and and live longer with them. And so um, that's just an example. And then there's a whole bunch of other uh, you know, sort of uh, freely available bush tucker that has good impact on on the body and the mind. So I think that in time that, you know, as a, as a culture in Australia, if we're able to merge in those things, um, then, then fantastic. But in reflection to your question about did that early experience influence things later in life, it's great that these things are being discussed now. I mean, my children are far more exposed to First Nations information, stories, um, than, than my generation. Certainly than mine as well. I mean, it's just, I, I, I think back and I think, why wasn't all of the stuff part of my primary school, kinder primary school education? It was like it didn't exist. It was an absolute crime, especially growing up in Gippsland because there's so many, like a lot of other places around Australia, but there was a lot of other very sacred places that were just off the map because they weren't spoken about or shared. Or would, or destroyed in the in the process of colonization. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, da- Bruce Pascoe's Dark Emu really describes how the sheep walked ahead of the people mm. and ate away at all the places at all the agriculture. Yeah, 
and then the celestial mark as the rocks were moved away. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's sort of like, you know, <clears throat> and Malakuda, um, and that's important for um, for him and, and other people, uh, that's right at the edge of the sort of the area which I was growing up, just to sort of contextualise, you know, um, the sort of importance of that. Your, your time on the coast as well. And, uh, uh, yeah. So how do you try and incorporate nature into aged care design and dementia-safe design? Um, I, well, I mentioned the word seasons. That's really important. Um, being, I mean, when when we're in receipt of care, there's moments where there's a stillness that happens. Um, and being engaged with um, the more sort of ambient, kind of ambient sort of characteristics of nature, uh, I think enable us to reflect and put us into a different kind of mindset, a meditative sort of mindset. And sometimes that meditative mindset mindset sort of enables us to be both reflective and also, um, you know, to think about things in the future. Watching the clouds, watching the leaves move, seeing the change of things that grow in spring and change, flower, I think are all really passive ways for us to continually engage with place and environment that's different from having a clock on a wall and the lights going on and the lights going off biophilia is a terrible word it is and, it's just and it's kind of creepy you know and but this idea of you know, this love of nature and you've got all these people who do workplace um home place sort of you know assessment and use the word biophilia and go Oh, biophilia is, you know, it's this love of nature, it's fantastic. Um, but most people respond adversely to that terms. Why, you know, why why can't we have just environmental, you know, love or environmental engagement? I think from a care point of view, a palliation point of view, when someone's end of life, I think um, start of life, end of life, engaging with the broader ecosystem is important. Putting your hands in soil when you're sort of dealing with large issues, what a great what a great moment, you know. And we saw certainly through, you know, COVID, a massive research massive resurgence in people wanting to do, you know, front yards, backyards, become, you know, productive landscapes and all those sort of things. I've read some studies that you absorb all the healthy microbes and all the healthy <laughs> biome from the soil and it helps regulate the gut brain link. Yeah, well maybe that's one of the things I grew up with growing in the country, sort of, you know, just rolling around in the mud and dirt all the time. Um, and I think that's a positive thing. And, and I think that when it comes to, um, you know, aged care, I think um, having access to all of those things, and not only reminiscent to someone's, you know, earlier time in their life, but it, it means that they're also engaging with things that are growing, not things that are just shrinking and dying. A more, a more future-focused perspective, yeah. which is necessary sometimes when there may not be an option for a future-focused perspective. Yeah. But but I get the sense that it was much more joyous to look at nature as a measure of time, the seasons passing, all these, in architecture, dear listeners, we call it ephemeral phenomena, but the, the, these things are intangible. The, the soft moments is, is much better than a linear metric, than a, a clock. Than well, I mean, you know, sort of a clock can be a little bit clinical in that circumstance when... Um, 
you know, and there's the exchange. There's like, you know, where to, like, you know, if we were to sort of go, oh, you know, have you tried these seeds? Have you tried this plant? And that plant might have a different kind of alkaline kind of requirement. There's an exchange. There's um, reason. There's a shared value. There's a, something that two people can talk about. And, you know, those sort of things can mitigate loneliness. They can, you know, introduce a, you know, a good neighbourly connection if someone's not, you know, um, not getting a lot of social life, you know. So I think that, you know, um, like fishing, like camping, um, there's certain cultural things that bring people together and they're able to reminisce, reminisce about that without it being necessarily, you know... It's a pluralistic and yeah. it's safe and it, mm. it's, it's a very diplomatic and important topic to, to connect over. Yeah, and some of the best care environments that I've seen um, certainly have... Uh, you know, like nature, fully integrated, you know, interior streets, interior planting, um, you know, atrium spaces and those sort of things. And that sort of, you know, changes the way in which air is handled. Um, you know, you can integrate scent and those sort of things into it. So there's a kind of a, a whole other well-being, a whole more holistic kind of approach to what the care environment is. What are some of your favourite uh, big design ideas that go into um, seniors living or d- dementia villages? <clears throat> well, uh, dementia villages are a, a unique thing, and they're sort of, well, look, to some extent, they're the ones that we've seen in Australia have been predominantly, you know, um, you know single use. You know, of course, they've got old pe- older people in them, and of course, they've got people who are living with uh, dementia at a whole spectrum of different, you know, uh, degrees. We know that there's a whole bunch of different types of dementia, so there's no one fit, one shoe fits all. <clears throat> Pardon me. But what I would say um, is that the more contemporary way of thinking is saying, why are those people siloed together into that one kind of area? Why do we do a dementia village when it can become a village for the aged or the village for, you know, for longer living? Um, That type of latter attitude is something which is more kind of contemporary and progressive than saying what we will do is a village for people with dementia. Because it's like a... You know, it's like putting people with cancer all in one spot or you know, those right. sort of things. The mixed care environment where you've got people living longer in different kind of, you know, environments, they're able to get the services that suit them um, is a model which is getting a lot more attention. And I, I think that that's, that's, that's good. I think it's good if you're able to... Um, have a sort of an apartment for life next door to more uh, care that requires a higher degree of servicing next to an intergenerational or a childcare centre and those sort of things. So it's not a care service silo. It's and when that located, yeah, when, when when it's done properly, you end up with the opportunity for new things to happen, new types of businesses because we're all living longer, and so the knowledge base in someone who's a little bit older who may have specialist knowledge in accounting can then cross over to something else that's to, to a person who's also living there who doesn't necessarily have those skills. So there's new opportunities. And I think that that's the dream, you know, is that sort of equitable approach to uh, care rather than putting it into boxes and sort of, you know, extracting it from the opportunity to have normalised, you know, community you know, interaction. And isolating people from society and further stigmatising people living with dementia. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and certainly Kingston's pretty good that way. 
I mean, Kingston's a long, skinny municipality. They're all, it's all pretty close to the beach. Um, but uh, the care facilities and retirement facilities that are through Kingston are relatively evenly distributed. Um, and you don't have to travel the 20, 40 kilometres to get, you know, to visit, you know, grandma, granddad, you know. Whereas with your rural work, that's a completely different situation as well with the, the work you do with Heathcote Dementia Alliance there. Yeah, well, distance is the sort of, you know, um, yeah, it's relative because, you know, growing up in the country, a half-hour drive is a half-hour drive, you know. Um, I've come to visit you tonight and it's taken me an hour and an hour and a half to get here. Um, and and that, that's fine. It's relative. But when you're you know dealing with you know taking children on and those sort of things, it does add an extra kind of you know we there yet we there yet sort of you know kind of component. The work with the Heathcote Dementia Alliance is, you know, very much trying to um, come up with a, a housing solution which is everywhere. Um, it's endeavouring to come up with a housing solution that deals with the in between, in the in between. Uh, fixed service silos, if you like. So in between health clinics, in between hospitals, they're large infrastructure, complex buildings that are fixed in terms of their location. So one of the um, uh, initiatives that we've been developing is a uh, care villa. We try to avoid the word cabin because it sort of taints it in a particular way. A care villa that um, is uh, utilises technology through um, it being a demountable pre-constructed um, structure that's brought on site via truck and then move on to site and then it's sort of uh, the fit-out is done by locals and uh, the fit-out can thereafter be done by a social enterprise. So the prototype, we've got one that's um, being fitted out at the moment in Heathcote, in the grounds of the Heathcote Hospital. We were given the land on a peppercorn lease, thank you State Government, that's really exciting. Yeah, and it's being fitted out. It, the, the fit out's being done at the moment, and that'll have artificial intelligence. It'll have a range of different technologies that are hardwired into it, not just about falls detection, but a range of other things. And um, you know, it's an eighty-three square meter um, one-bedroom unit with a a point five bedroom that can be used either as a um, a workplace area for someone who's providing in-home care or it can be used for a, um, you know, a visitor. That's a really good size. That's yeah. much much bigger than most one or two bedroom apartments. That's even. right, yeah. So when 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 our, our tradie you know, fabricator said, oh, this is as big as you can go on the truck, we went, okay, that's the brief, you know. And um, and the one in Heathcote um, has a quite a phenomenal panorama window that runs the entire length of the um, of the truck, um, and you do not need to turn on the lights. You do not need to, um, you know, uh, do that sort of thing during the day. It's you see the sky, you see all the big cloud movement, you see the sort of you know the ridge behind Heathcote, and um, at the moment the kitchen's just been put in, the wardrobes are being put in, and it's all dementia friendly sort of um, uh, showcasing so that people from a rural and, and the city can go and visit this and learn and sort of perhaps maybe want to do that in their own backyard or on their farm so that someone, a loved one, can live longer, ageing in place, before they need to go into high care. 
And that's that's the main advantage of having this portable, prefabricated, and on and on the truck bed. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I also want to add that this is this is core integral sustainability, really, as we've been discussing on the show in previous episodes. Been talking about sustainability as something that's truly sustainable is connected to place, and this is designed where it's meant to be, where it's meant to sit. It's to observe the place you're from. It's in the in the, in the style. I, I'll ask you a bit more about. Um, what are some of the architectural elements of, of the villa? I'm, I'm excited to hear about this this example of really core core sustainability. Yeah, well, well. Um, the Heathcote Dementia Alliance is made up of volunteers, and I'm I'm one of four, and um, and we decided that we wanted to make this difference, right? And so we were very fortunate that um, uh, the proceeds from a very generous you know um local has enabled us to build this first um, prototype we've been doing a lot of fundraising and um, it's really important that it's reminiscent i'll use that word it's reminiscent so it's intentionally reminds you of from certain angles a shed from other angles it reminds you of a cabin from other angles, it reminds you of that lunchroom that you might have had in the local primary school. And there's all these different things that are welded together. Bush mechanic is a big thing. Um, the Heathcote Dementia Alliance, we have a thing called the Bush, you know, the Bush-inspired model of care. And um, that's very much about a can-do attitude of bringing things together that both deals for the carer and the person in receipt of care. So the Heathcote Dementia Alliance comes together and we've formulated this structure that's reminiscent of a range of different building types. The idea being is that it's a living example of that reminds me of rather than it is. That's so important. Well, it, it, well thank you because the, the, the reminding of is a conversation that I might have, the, being the person living with dementia, you're... You're my home care carer who comes in to visit me in my care villa. This reminds me of is more complex in a neural pathway than this is a villa or this is a shed. It reminds me of puts it into time, place. It's a much more complex arrangement of thinking than saying that it is one particular thing. So reminiscence within architecture, not just within music therapy, not just reminiscence in terms of art therapy, but reminiscence in terms of the built form, tapping into certain typological It's aspects. a therapeutic building. Absolutely. The building's providing a sense of therapy. Yeah, and that's, 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 part of, that's part of the mission statement within uh, the Heathcote Dementia Alliance. Which not a lot of care, care typologies or, or care-based projects, are, that's for our listeners, that's healthcare, aged care, um, palliative care, any type of building with care at the end becomes a care typology. But a lot of those places are very functional and they have to serve this really functional purpose. And not often are they therapeutic in, in that way. Yeah, well, I think, well, I mean, the attitudes are changing and certainly we're, we're, in this case we are both client and the deliverer. So we've got that benefit. Um, we've got the benefit of an enlightened um, host, which is the Heathcote Hospital, which, or, which does provide some um, aged care um, care within the hospital Like an building. acute service? Yeah. yeah. And this is all about bringing people out of country hospital beds 
bed block is pulling them out of that and putting them into something which is co-located on a hospital ground so they can still have the emergency care, they still have nurses if need be, but they can live in this in this particular scenario with um, home care. Or if they need lower levels of care, they can just stay in their family farm on their family backyard. Yeah, and the benefit about that, because part of the speculation is that there's an opportunity in the future for country hospitals to quarantine some um, area close to their hospital for this housing type, it means that your and, – and this is the kicker. It's a fantastic idea. It means that your bathroom travels with you. It means that your bed travels with you, your paintings, your, your ephem- life ephemera travels with you. So if you've been out on the farm or in the you know, country block with one of these care villas, it's then picked up and moved to the grounds of the hospital everything's yours. It's not like you're moving into suddenly um, elbow-controlled um, basins. Yeah. You know? And it's not that clinical. It's not the clinical uh, model of care. So that really simple idea of yours is yours and your home travels with you is um, uh, has been a core thing for us to try and maintain. And the amount of dignity that can be afforded to people in that situation is incredibly important. Yeah. Well, the underpants don't move, the socks don't move, you know, think, little little things, you know. Like, little things that make you a whole human. Yeah. They give you the whole, whole human experience. You mentioned ageing in place earlier and I've mentioned it in previous episodes as well, but I think it's actually important that we define it, like wh- what that what that truly is because I, I think sometimes ageing in place can become a bit of an architectism. Well, yeah, well, I, look... Back in the day, you know, before, you know, mid-20th century kind of, you know, um, industrialised care really kicked in, the industrialised, you know, the industrialised kind of um, hospitals and those sort of things, people would prefer to be at home when they aged. And I don't think that that's changed. Um, Ageing in place is um, living longer in the place of familiarity, supported by services that enable you to do that in the most possible dignified fashion. And even better is when you flourish, when that happens. You know, if there's changes that happen to the way in which you live. So it's more about style of life rather than lifestyle, right? Mm. So if you can make changes to the style of life, then sometimes you flourish. And you can flourish living with dementia. You can flourish with other types of decline. It's the, it's the circumstances of care and the attitude to, to how that's given. And that's where... Um, governance models become really important. And you mentioned earlier on that there's not too many places that seek to have their built form become an experiential lesson in their governance or their their mission. I would say that that's part of the criteria of being an architect, Absolutely. working in the sector to do that. Absolutely. That, that mm. is the definition of truly successful architecture yeah. where you're influencing the, the environment, we are influencing human behaviour in space. That environmental psychology is probably one of the main things that motivated me into the profession yeah. as well, other, other than, of course, the creative temptations, but um, that but the power of the ability to affect change yeah. environmentally just through people's experience in space. Yeah. Well, the other thing is it's, it's – uh, you know, homes, I mean, homes are memory banks. You know, they, they sort of become places where, you know, you 
you know, you have birthdays and celebrations and all those sort of other meaningful things that you hold on to for the rest of your life. And I think that, you know, you don't get that unless there's been, you know, unless you're aware and you start to live in a place, do you make those kind of connections? And store them long enough and hang on to them. Yeah. How distressing it would be for people to then have to need a high level of care, move away from all those memories and then their their attachment further goes from it. Yes, that's right. And, you know, that's where that's, – that's high care and, and it's sad and it's um, unfortunate. But I've seen some fairly incredible things that have happened. I don't personally like um, the terminology um, – a memory support unit, MSU. I don't particularly like it, but it's a common acronym that's used to describe high care dementia. And um, people who know me will know this little story that I'm about to um, share with you. Um, uh, a colleague of mine, um, back a couple of years ago, we were working at the same practice, and um, her name's Nikki. Nikki, if you're listening, hello. And uh, we were doing some work for a non for non for profit um, aged care, and Nikki um, couldn't um, find short term care for her daughter, and so her daughter came with us out to this visit. We went to this MSU, and um, and it was it's sad, you know, people. Um, you know what happens with you know longer term sort of dementia is their their eyes can move back into their skull and they're not they're not they're not foregrounded their consciousness the consciousness is not in the foreground it's in a different kind of space if you like usually backwards not forward right and so we're in we're in this memory support unit and there's a bunch of older people and they're sitting around and for all intensive purposes you go this is awful. And Nikki's daughter's with us, okay? And the next thing is this old, very old lady starts seeing Itsy Bitsy Spider, right? And she's doing the hand movement. And it was miraculous. It was phenomenal to see within a very short period of time this lady who was living back in her space in behind her eyes, you know, she's dwelling in that space, come forward and actually have the words and to be able to engage with this little child in this little song and she was smiling and this kid was smiling and it was just one of the most gorgeous things I've ever seen. That's so beautiful. You know? And so they're not, they're there. And it's about finding things to bring them into the there. And music does it. Reminiscence does it in terms of events. People can do it. Smell can do it. Engaging with the environment can do it. And why aren't all these things mandated as being like, you know, you know, necessary? You know, there should be no discussion as to why you can't have access to these things. Human rights, really. Human rights, absolutely. And human rights is huge... You know, there's a number of people who really take that on. Kate Swaffer from, you know, um, you know uh, from South Australia um, is a huge advocate for, you know, human rights within this arena. And they get, 
they get sort of pushed around, unfortunately. And I think that that's one of the hopes that we have out of the Royal Commission and some of the other um, housing and accommodation alternatives that are being discussed and evolved, you know, deal with that. But that lady, itsy bitsy spider, you know, do you think that we drove back to, you know, it was on the edge of Melbourne, do you think that we drove back to Melbourne talking about the architecture? No, I don't think so. No. Oh, wow. You know, and that, that's, that's kind of profound. And, you know, and, this, and that's just an example. I mean, it's a huge driver when you can actually, you know, get close to being able to elicit that. I'm interested in this idea of co-locating services um, and programs and community amenities, and community infrastructure and even kindergartens. Like, how can that work with a care villa? Well, we're doing that, um, well, strangely enough, the um, in Mildura, big shout out to Mildura, beautiful place, highly recommend everyone go up there. It is actually a great, it's a great regional city. And um, we currently have um, in planning a cluster community. So the housing prototype that we've developed for Heathcote is not the same as the one to which we developed for Mildura. Different climate, different shadows and so forth. The economy around the idea is similar. We work up a similar shell and then we do a bespoke interior. Right? So the interior options are, you know, um, stroke, dementia, um, ocular degeneration, obesity. You know, and so there's an interior, there's a sort of the interior is tailored to deal with those sort of things. Um, so what we're doing in Mildura, um, opposite the Generations um, Early Learning Centre and opposite Chaffee Aged Care, um, some land has been gifted to us and we're putting a, uh, a cluster of six um, next to that, which has a secret garden in the centre and it has a, a living lab kind of, you know, um, study uh, villa off to the side. And there's universities involved and um, and we're sort of building up that model. That's in for town planning at the moment. Oh, that's amazing. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. And hopefully an excellent data set to help adv advocate up to government as a result. Well, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, data sets are incredible. Um, and the AI, a lot of people get really worried about that. Yeah, yeah, tell me more. You know, this, is, this isn't sort of chat, uh, chat GPT. It's, this is um, artificial intelligence. So, for example, it, it monitors the air, it monitors the, you know, uh, falls, obviously. That's all relatively generic. But there's extensions to that which are, um, uh, you know, particularly the air outside, you know, so smoke alarm, if there's grass fires on the way. Um, there's um, artificial intelligence capability. So if there's a photograph on the wall, um, you know, uh, you know if, if, if I'm living in one of these villas and I'm living with dementia, but, you know, I want to call you, I'm going to have a photograph of you on the wall and I touch you and, it, and what it does, it makes the telephone call. Um, the artificial intelligence has a live capacity to translate language. So if you've got a carer who doesn't have English as a first language, you can do on the fly translation in terms of, you know, one language to another. So that sort of opens up, you know, opportunities in terms of, you know, workplace employment, diversity. And they're just some of the examples, apart from heart rate, wet, dry, those sort of things. They're, That's amazing. Yeah, so <clears throat> the data sets are important. Um, uh, within that arena because the more evidence 
the more we have in terms of presenting back to um, back to government. And also just speaks you can then evidence the data of how people are thriving in the in those environments. That's, that post occupancy evaluation piece is also really important. Yeah, 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 absolutely. But the other thing that a lot of people don't think about is also how long it takes for people to mend. So, um, you know, if you've had someone who's had a fall and you've got more measurement on that, then you're able to predict what's needed for that period of time in a more comprehensive manner than just going, oh, they've had a fall, they need these services, dot, dot, dot. You know, there's an answer to it, or at least there's a sort of a period of time. So the more information that goes into that... It's more tailored to the person. Yeah, and workplace and the type of services that they might need in the home. Fantastic. Mm. You also mentioned air monitoring internally, mm. externally. How important is clean air becoming now in aged care? <laughs> well, I think anyone who's been into an, an old-style um, aged care facility would go, you know, air needs a bit of work here. Um, so naturally ventilated the old-style ones. They're pretty stinky. <laughs> well, yeah, toast and urine is a, um, you know, is a, is a particular um, smell that happens in some of them. Um, Look, clean air is, you know, I'll say it, thank you, COVID, for um, bringing it to, you know, mainstream um, understanding. Uh, airflow, great. Clean air, great. Natural air, great. Open a window, get some good air coming through, wonderful. People who live in the countryside know this. And, you know, I know plenty of um, older folk in the country who still every day, will do it every day, open up the doors and windows of their house just to sort of vent it out whether it's got to do with the wood stove or whether it's got to do with the open fire. It's just a matter of, of what they do. People in the city, a little bit different. Um, good clean air, um, you know, a higher reading of um, carbon monoxide or carbon dioxide is, is one of the measures for um, predicting um, a higher opportunity to pick up COVID. So understanding what is, you know, in the composite of what we're breathing in it's not only an extension of well-being in the sense that we don't want to have chemicals in what we breathe, just like we don't want chemicals in the water that we drink. Having that understanding, I think, is really important. And there's nothing – well, I, it's a real thing I don't like – is seeing people who are detached from their environment because the heating is turned up too high and they're just falling asleep. It's, it's, a, it's a form of restraint, in my opinion – when you have um, older people in stale areas, in places of care, who are passed out because there's not enough oxygen. You know, the heating's turned up too much. People get sleepy when the CO2 is too high as well. You know, and not, that's right, they're not, they're not engaged. You know, they're not, it's, I just don't think that it's nice. I don't think that, you know, you know nice is too, too polite. I just think that it's, uh, you know, it drives me nuts when I see that. I don't, you know, it's cruel and it's awful. In my opinion, and care providers also have a responsibility um, to prevent infection under their care, and the, there's numbers and numbers of protocols against hospital-acquired infections, and it hasn't quite found its way into legislation yet of airborne pre airborne prevention in uh, less acute settings like like aged care. Well, I mean, it's certainly um, <laughs> under the building code of the 9C just doesn't sort of really... On, on, on the way in which we now resonate around the issue, um, you know, doesn't sort of, you know, um, certainly 
tackle those issues on the same sort of degree which you know we expect now i'm i'm really optimistic though i'm i'm really hopeful about the future at least all the uh, major hospitals, government hospitals I'm working on at the moment, mm-hmm. they're all at 100% outside air, mm-hmm. high air change rate, yep. fresh air is coming in. We're, we're getting there. Like we installed sewers as a society. We clean the water we drink. We're going to get there with air. Is that, is that your feeling as well? Is that popularity also growing? Well, I mean, the residential aged care, um, Due to the scale of those buildings, and um, certainly in the regional setting, not within the metro setting, where you end up with really some significantly big buildings that are consolidated, um, there is a culture of opening windows. And so, um, uh, and I'd like to see that happen. I don't like the reliance upon mechanical ventilation personally, you know. Um, and when there's opportunities to tap into other means of providing that, whether it's geothermal or the like, we should definitely seize it. Your heat you know? pump, heat pump yeah. air exchange. Yeah. You can get a continuous flow of outside air. <coughs> I mean. That's mm. even available residentially, mm. as I'm starting to see around now. Um, th- thank you for that insight, and I think it's important conversations to continue having um, and as professionals in the built environment space as architects we're at the some sometimes we get early access to that knowledge early access to that uh in, information that's always really important uh, to keep sharing i wanted to ask what's respite tourism oh right <laughs> well it's something in australia that we don't do too well and um if you google respite tourism you might find um a picture of a suburban house with an over over dimensioned ramp out the front that doesn't look very pretty that's the conventional, um, you know, mainstream way of thinking of respite tourism in Australia, or at least according to Google. It's much more refined in Spain, much more refined in Geneva and, and France. And the whole idea is um, tailored accommodation that acknowledges the carer and also acknowledges the person in receipt of care. And it came about through workshops that we're having at the Heathcote Dementia Alliance um, regarding our prototype out there known as Costafield House. And it's an idea that you can go and stay in a place knowing that it's been tailored to something, to a, to a, to a, to a care requirement, a need. So, for example, um, you can travel with your, your, your loved one who might be living with dementia or obesity or post-stroke or whatever, and stay for a period of time in a care cabin that's tailored for that need and it be complemented by home care locally. Home care travels with the individual. So, for example, you can come into the Heathcote region and your needs of the person who's in receipt of care is then complemented by access to the Heathcote hospital, for example. So both people can have a holiday or a break he or she is the carer can go and have a game at local golf, knowing that their loved one who's in receipt of care is still having that continuum on board. So they can still have a holiday. And so if you do a, um, a search for you know DDA compliant um, holiday houses or things like that, you'll come across a whole range of different <laughs> definitions of that. And there's nothing worse than sort of, you know, thinking that you're going to have a holiday with a loved one and then you can't get into the building. 100%. So if you're able to 
complement um, the regional economy because there's a uptake in a shift of the thinking paradigm, then that's uh, one of the benefits. It's, it's another way of introducing an income stream to a farm where they may have had a care villa for Uncle Freddie, who has subsequently died. He's passed on, but they've still got this asset, which is tailored. Why not do something with it? Airbnb. Exactly. Well, we, we were calling it Care B&B. And that was our kind of, you know, that's been our kind of working um, kind of strategy around that. And but there'll be some respite tourism, which will eventually become um, what our care villa is at the Heathcote Hospital. That'll eventually become a, a, um, a respite tourism pod. <coughs> Pardon me. And also, we're making allowance for that in Mildura. Those are much more specific, but also much more dignified form of accessibility where people can find that that need for or or meet the need that they have in order to continue living um for want of a better word a normal life mm. that they're otherwise excluded from that really gives me pause just just the thought that actually people can't do that well that's right there's a fantastic day um uh um facility out in towards the Yarra valley and they take um their um, visitors that come for day programs for dementia out to the Arrow Valley into the vineyards. Yeah. Vineyards are great because they're a low frequency. Low frequency environments are very good for calming. You know, it's not like the neon lights of Chinatown, you know, which are intense. They're high frequency. Low frequency has a positive impact of bringing people into a calmer state, right? Now, why, why, why should it be just the sort of, you know, 20 or 30-somethings in love who have the opportunity to go and stay in a nice little pot on a vineyard? All the people love wine. That's right. <laughs> True. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, so here's an opportunity to kind of extend that as well. Like, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so it's uh, the respite too, that's where it comes from. And, and I've had the good fortune of running that as a design brief on one of the design studios at RMIT. And, you know, the students responded really well to it so getting away from the bland and into the beautiful as almost again a human right beauty is a human right yeah i did i did want to ask how do you motivate young people's you know undergraduate students even 20 somethings um to take an interest in this topic where they may have not had the life experience or not not everyone by that point in their in their life is uh, necessarily been touched by someone that needs a higher level of care or um, so not something most undergrads think about. How, how, how do you get them into being interested in th- this work and to then ballot for a design studio because they have choice, they have a lot of <coughs> options. RMIT has a really robust program. It's, it's up to like 20-something studios a semester, isn't it, um, that up for grabs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, um, and... Yeah, <clears throat> how can I say it? Um, look, the type of the the word that's used for the the way in which you design the um, curriculum is often referred to as the pedagogy. I think that's how you say it, the pedagogy. And so the structure that I um, try to implement is to um, be a little bit instructional upfront in terms of exercises and normalise, introduce language, introduce the language around these things normalising and then after midway move into a conversational um, style of education so you're, you're discussing it 
One thing's for sure, students love to own their work. So if you're able to teach them around some of these complex issues, but get them to own the solution, or you know what, they, what they're proposing as a solution to a way of life and to engage with meaning, um, then I have found that that's a really great way for them to sort of move from um, being told how to do something to thinking about how they might do it. And the outcome of that is, um, you know, engagement with the studio and loyalty to the program. And, for example, I mean, last semester I, I ran a studio which was looking at a men's, First Nations uh, Men's Healing Centre and uh, we went out to country, out to, you know, out past Mildura because that's where the site was. And so we engage with place, we engage with story, but then we run through a whole series of different narrative themes, which is all about dealing with, coming to terms with continuous occupation, that term, continuous occupation of the issue. And that idea of continuous occupation for our First Nations brothers and sisters is also similar to anyone continuously occupying um, a need for care because it doesn't go away. And so, um, you know, I'm fascinated by by the outcomes of what that can be. And I'm also really interested to see how um, students deal with issues such as, you know, um, uh, wandering wandering as a result of cognitive decline versus wandering as being part of a cultural expression and how 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 would you design for that and that's a fascinating design problem which you don't get in most other sectors <laughs> so um yeah I, I i enjoy the teaching it enables me to um remain uh active in thinking and i get as much out of it as uh, as the students you know, keep, keeps you inspired and engaged. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I'm running running a very similar program this um, this semester. It's the first time in, and this will show you how old I've am in t uh, 22 years since you know I've been sessionally educating at RMIT for 22 years or thereabouts. Um, it's the first time I'm running a curriculum which is similar to the last semester. I normally do something completely different, uh, but last semester was great. And a very worthy continued line of inquiry. Yeah, I think so. For, for round two on that. Mm. that. That's excellent. What have been some of the really surprising moments or unexpected discoveries either from your academic research or from the research you, you've done with Heathcote Dementia Alliance or on, on some projects? Have you had some outcome from your work in this space that has really surprised you? Um, the things that surprise me um, are people's willingness to uh, engage with the issue when they can. And the other thing is people's willingness to share very private and personal care information when you're asking them what's your experience. Um, I think the volunteer base in Australia is amazing. Um, there's a lot of innovation that happens out of people's willingness to give up time. And that's a really um, something that we do not account for enough. Um, you know, we 
we gladly accept it, whether it's in the CFA or whether it's in aged care or whether it's in scouts or guides at the local footy club. This radio station. Yeah, you know. <laughs> and, um, and all of that has value. And so um, it's that social export, it's that social economy, uh, the human capital that where it gets kind of exciting. And, you know, my friend um, uh, Peter McLean, um, he does these fantastic things where he sort of models networks and things like that. And he sort of, you know, talks about moving away from there being silos into platforms of innovation. And um, and I really like that way of thinking. If we're able to facilitate platforms for people to innovate, whether it's in food and nutrition, whether it's in the model of care, whether it's um, in this space here tonight in terms of podcasting and getting stories out that make our community richer – fantastic they're platforms of innovation and so you know um, within the my experience I've seen uh, social innovation ideas come up where there has been radio stations in aged care I've seen breweries start I've seen you know um, a whole new food line happen book style of book clubs and all sorts of different sort of you know um, crossovers of uh, expertise and knowledge sharing and people being able to continue their passion, even mm. though they require high level of care. Yeah, that's right. They keep that personhood, that character mm. as well. I think any, anyone who's come close to working with volunteers even knows how motivated people can <laughs> are in local communities. So it's just Indeed. like non-stop. Indeed. Non-stop. Go, 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 go. Yes. And that's... If it, it fuels, it fuels many societies in a in a way exactly as you said that it's not accounted for. Yeah, well, look, you know, um, the, our project in Mildura, um, you know, we were very lucky that um, there's a thing called Dinner Under the Vines, um, which is hosted by Stefano Tapura, who's the well-known chef in um, in Mildura. He said, "I will donate the proceeds of this annual event to our." cluster opportunity in Mildura and so the Heathcote Dementia Alliance we all pack up our cars and we all go up there and we you know wait on plates and 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 contribute through volunteering and you know we 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 raised forty thousand dollars that night and um you know that goes towards doing something yeah huge congratulations on your effort so far and we wish you every every success in it going forward Thank you. Because it's tremendous change that can be affected and tremendous benefit that's, yeah. that's brought to people. Yeah, that's our drivers. And certainly it's uh, I'm one part of it. It's one part of many parts. Uh, big shout out to a big crew. And just a couple of weeks ago, it was mentioned on this show that everything in Australia requires a precedent and you need to do something to be able to do something. <laughs> Much of the government procurement process is to blame for that as well. But hopefully you'll work with Heathcote and these pilot programs, these prototypes can be rolled out nationally and be adapted mm. as well to each climate, to each country, to each orientation. Yes. Yep. That's a fantastic dream. And that's what we're, we're trying to do. And sort of the interiors are then can be uh, picked up by, you know, social enterprise and the knowledge expands, continues out. I did want to ask about mm. the interiors. Um, in that, what maybe perhaps from a dementia safe perspective, what what specifically are some of the key things that you look for that make a dementia safe environment also successful and help people thrive uh, internally? Yeah, yeah, sure. 
Um, look, I'd say that um, because there's not just one form of dementia, there's a, there's, a, there's a whole range, there's not one shoe that fits all, one thing that is common across decline is people's um, understanding of legibility. So if a room has a purpose, it has that purpose. So if you've got spatial legibility in your home, um, then that's a good way forward to assist people living longer as they age in place. Does that mean like open plan doesn't really work because it's too much in one area? Or? Uh, it can, but what more is the point is functional areas being true to their function. Okay. So, you know, dining rooms that suddenly have a workplace, <laughs> not really good. You know, um, uh, it's that type of le- spatial and narrative legibility through the home is a, is a good thing. A kitchen that looks like a kitchen, a bathroom that looks then like a bathroom. Then you can drill down. And you can look at the sort of appliances and make sure that certain appliances, you know, like gas obviously is a problem, you know, those induction cooktops are good, you know, um, instead of avoiding um, having too many labels through the home, if you're able to have clear inserts into some of the door leaves on your cupboard so that the clothes can be read in behind, those sort of simple little things can make a huge difference to someone feeling as though they're in control of those smaller elements and that can help mitigate people's frustrations because they're you know they're living with their own frustrations you know so um you know if you enable that they're able to flourish in their own sort of little micro decisions so um those sort of things are, are good and the the in, in both the interior and the external envelope that actual fabric of the building support that they hold they hold space for those moments for hold space for the frustrations for the care needs <laughs> for the for the privacy and i think i think you know you 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 raise a good point there because um you know earlier i mentioned um low frequency imagery being good for calming calming an individual it's the same thing with sound you know people would be more on edge if there's you know a lot of background noise so that if you can acoustically treat something so that it's quieter good got the right light level because we've got to remember that as we age our capacity to read um, not only read but also uh, deal with contrast and color values depreciates so you know typically the lux level has to be bumped up significantly Um, older people feel temperature um, a lot more than younger people obviously Um, and even though you know, both you and I are fans of open, you know, fresh air coming through. We have to be mindful that um, our elder brothers and sisters will need extra clothing and comfort, you know, layers to uh, mitigate that. But nonetheless, the fresh air is really good. And um, so, you know, acoustics and sound, air, all do play that sort of, you know. These key things, fundamental, simple things, not actually that expensive to get right. No. Are finally get starting to get some attention. Mm. Slowly, slowly, people are learning more about why it's important. And even I'm seeing um, acoustic modulating earplugs constantly <laughs> through my targeted advertising across social media platforms that shall not be named uh, <laughs> are, are popping in and they serve different functions. So you can use it for partying, you can use them for regulating sound, but this is being marketed to everyone. Yeah. Not just people with sensory needs or people um, on, on the autism spectrum or pe- people living with other sensitivities that 
that may need support for or have some sort of shame with. It's just being pumped out everywhere. Yeah, but that the the augmentation of care is um, is developing at a rapid rate of knots, and that's 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 where the innovation is occurring. Our city's already innovated. We already have, you know. Um, you know, dots at the intersection for the, for people who are sight-challenged to understand that there's an intersection. We already have flashing lights. Our city, our urban environments, we've got signs. They're already augmented. But the integration of um, dynamic technology into that is pretty exciting. I mean, my mother-in-law has hearing aids and she can happily listen to the radio, you know. Because it all taps in, yeah. It's all it Bluetooth, in. you know. Yeah. And it's fantastic, you know. And so... You know that's that's you know um, you know that's that's our, our thing that's um, you know really interesting about where we're going as a species, um, where we're augmenting technology to make people enable people to perhaps flourish in a way that they've never been able to before. We don't know what the full capacity of someone is who's been sight challenged in birth or through hearing. They may have a completely fascinating you know particular nuance about the you know neurology that enables them to do things and i think that technologies are a way under the right type of governance obviously and regulation and regulation to yeah. make that happen and you know we're living longer the longevity care sector is is something that um you know i'm i'm vested in i think that it's a really interesting architectural space to try to work in it certainly is. All care typologies, I think, become yeah. the real test of good architecture. Yeah. And can you make those spaces exciting? Uh, this is a good a good um, segue in your point of future innovation into my last question, which is what gives you hope? <laughs> what gives me hope? Um, look, I'm a big fan of being you know, curious. And um, when curiosity is rewarded with opportunity... That gives me hope. You know, I think that if I can see that in, in the students or I can see that by, you know, someone in the you know, in the community being curious about an something and they then given the opportunity, I I think that's hopeful. Yeah. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, Simon. Absolute pleasure. And all the very very all the very best with this work. Great, thank you. Thanks for joining me for another evening of Radio Architecture with Alana Rasbash. This live show was broadcast and recorded in the Radio Karim studio on Bonnarong Country. You can replay the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and supporting Community Radio. Take care. This is Minimum Wong. You're listening to Radio Karam.